Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 4, but keep your finger in Genesis and Galatians. So think about those two, too, the Genesis and Galatians. We're probably going to be flipping a little bit back and forth between all three uh, this morning. But we'll start in Romans 4. Let us then uh, read Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. We will read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in the faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. We're, in, we're going to finish up this section here in Romans uh, in which Paul is trying to demonstrate the saving righteousness of God. And this is this whole section between uh, chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 4. And, and the, the point here is that since no one can achieve righteousness through works of the law, since one is righteous in God's sight, uh, by their, uh, no one is righteous in, their, in God's sight by their own merits. God must intervene. God must do a work in our lives. And God does intervene in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in Romans 3, 21 through 26. Paul makes the argument here that since all have sinned, since all have fallen short of the glory of God, therefore they must be freely justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say that this redemption, this justification is freely received by grace or by, yeah, by grace through faith in Christ. And then he goes on in uh, chapter three, verses 27 through 31 to further say that this justification through faith excludes any kind of boasting because it is not of works. It is apart from works of the law. And this is a justification that is for both Jews and and for Gentiles as well. It is for, for all who believe. And then through this justification, as he says in verse 31, we don't make the law null and void. It, rather, we uphold the law. We are law keepers. We are law fulfillers because by grace through faith, we have 
Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect law-keeping. And then last week, verses 1 through 12, then after having made his main argument in the end of chapter 3, Paul then goes on to sort of prove his argument. He, he, he lays out the principle, and then he goes on to demonstrate how that principle is true by looking at the life of Abraham, the, the great Jewish patriarch. And then the goal of his argument in that last section, verses 1 through 12, is to answer one question. Was Abraham justified by faith? Or was he justified by works? And then he turns to the scriptures. He says, well, what do the scriptures say? What does the inerrant, infallible, uh, unfailing, authoritative word of God have to say on the matter of Abraham? And of course, it says that he was justified by, by faith. It was through his faith that it was accounted to him as righteousness. We looked at Genesis 15, where he establishes that, that covenant with, with Abraham there. His faith in the promises of God, putting, pointing forward to their fulfillment in Christ, which uh, was the means through which God granted Abraham righteousness. It was through that act of faith where he believed in God. And then, of course, we, he goes on in the latter half of that section, verses 1 through 12, to show, to further punctuate his argument, Paul goes on to show that circumcision, the great sign of the covenant that the Jews placed so much confidence in, was given to Abraham after he was already justified. That's what he says. Was, was he circumcised before he believed or after? And Paul says, well, it was after he believed. Because, again, we said Genesis 17 comes after Genesis 15. And that, that circumcision was not, it did not make him righteous because it made him part of the covenant people. We talked about that last week. It was sort of a seal. It was a certification. We talked about certification. It was a certification that he was already righteous. It was a, sh- a sign to show that he did believe, he did have righteousness, and then he was sealed into that with the sign of circumcision. And this is, of course, to show that Abraham is not only the father of the Jewish people, but he is the father of all the faithful. We, anybody who believes in Jesus Christ can claim Abraham as their father. You don't have to be of Jewish descent. That's the point. Is those who exercise the same faith, the same believing faith that, that Abraham did. So now as we come to the end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, Paul is going to complete his argument about this point that he began back in Romans 3.21. So just as Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, so too Abraham is a recipient of the promise that God made to him by faith, not through the law. And this passage we're going to look at here is going to break down into four movements, four parts, if you will. Uh, Verses 13 through 15, we're going to see how the promise did not come through the law. The promise that God made to Abraham was not something he received as being a law keeper. And then verses 16 through 17, it's going to show that the promise depends on faith. It is through faith that he gets the promises. It is through faith that he is a recipient of these promises that God made. And then a case, you know, sort of like a, a case study in verses 18 through 21, Abraham's faith is then put on display. He shows how his how Abraham did believe in the promises of God. That's 18 through 21. And then 22 through 25, Paul will then go to show, just as it was true for Abraham, so too it is true for us. 
Just as Abraham was a recipient of the promises through faith, we too are recipient of the promises through faith. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, we too are justified by faith. That's how the passage breaks up. At least that's how it broke up in my mind. It might be a little fuzzy on some of the boundaries, but that's, that's what we're going to look at. So first, as we look at verses 13 through 15, we're going to see that the promise did not come through the law. Paul's going to switch gears here a little bit and move from speaking about Abraham's justification through faith to now speak about how the promises made to Abraham were received by faith. And he says in verses 13 through 15, for the promise that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs. Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So this promise that Paul talks about here, this promise that is received by faith, not through the law, what is this promise? What are these promises that were given to Abraham and to his seed? That's where we're going to turn now to Rome, or Genesis chapter 12. So again, this is, we looked a little bit at this last time, I think. Uh, this is the call to Abraham, how uh, Abraham was called out of his homeland and told to go to the land of Canaan. So we see in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and, and Lot went with him. And Abraham, or sorry, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and, his, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. In this passage, God makes several promises to Abram. He promises to make Abram into a great nation. He promises to bless Abraham or Abram. And bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He promises that in him or through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then as we saw in verse 7, he promises to give the land to his descendants or to his seed after him. Now what we see here is that God initially worked through individuals up to this point. He worked through Adam and then through Seth and then through Noah and then through the sons of Noah and now we see here as he's working through individuals, but from this point forward, God is going to start working through a people, a group of people, a, a people with a national identity. 
And that people will then grow eventually to encompass every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. Now this land promise that we see here in verse 7 is reiterated in Genesis 13, 15. You don't need to turn there. But if you will, please turn now to Genesis 17. Now Genesis 12 is the call of Abram. Genesis 15 is the establishment of the covenant. Here in Genesis 17, we see the sign or the seal of the covenant where the sign of circumcision is given now to Abram. And starting in verse 4 of Genesis 17, we see this land promise will be reiterated again, where he says here, As for me, behold, my covenant, this is God speaking, is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Verse 8, also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. So here again, that land promise is reiterated in verse 8 where the land is going to be given to Abraham and his descendants as an everlasting possession. So along with a reassurance of the other stipulations of the promises, uh, God here makes again the promise of the land as an everlasting possession. Now, we could turn back to Romans, if you will. Now, one thing that is interesting here in verse 13 of Romans 4, Paul says that to Abraham and his seed, a promise was made that he would be heir of the world. Okay, now, we've just looked at Genesis. The land that was given to him was the land of Canaan. Now, if you are familiar with the map, Israel is a very, very small country. Even at its largest borders, it was still a very, very small country would probably fit within the state of Nebraska, would be my guess. I'm not sure. But still, that is not the whole world, okay? <laughs> it's not even the whole world according to their understanding, which would have just been around the Mediterranean and the Middle East. So what does Paul mean here about this idea about heir to the world? Well, I think what we see here is an expansion of the original land promise. Now, the promise that was made, again, you have to understand what the Old Testament, the Old Testament points to Christ, okay? We understand that as a general principle, that the Old Testament points to Christ. That's what Jesus said to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. He said, you know, he gave them, he told them from the law and the prophets and and the Psalms how everything pertained to him. He tells the Jews in John 5, he says, search the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament, and you will see that the scriptures speak about me. So everything in the Old Testament while a real promise and real things were given and real things are t- spoken about, they all sort of typify, they all sort of point forward to, they're all sort of shadows, if you will, of the substance that we'll see in the New Testament. And I think the same here can be said of the land promise. The land of Canaan is a type and a shadow of greater things to come. In a sense, you can think of Canaan as a new Eden, 
That as Adam and Eve were kicked out of, uh, out of the Garden of Eden, God through Abraham and through the Jews and then bringing them to the Promised Land, the Promised Land was supposed to be set up as a sort of new Eden. Okay, it's in a fallen world to be sure, but a new Eden nonetheless. A land flowing with milk and honey, reminiscent of the garden. Now the original promise of the land was fulfilled when Joshua brought the people in and conquered the land. Okay, God said, I'm going to give you this land. He promised that to Abraham. And then Moses, when he came time to Moses, he said, we're going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And the whole 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was a journey of the people to the promised land. Now Moses sinned and couldn't go in, but Joshua, his, his lieutenant, his protege, takes up the mantle and leads the people across the Jordan. And with the power of God behind them, they smite all of Israel's enemies in the land of Canaan. But if you remember through the book of Joshua, through the book of Judges, did Israel possess all of the land that was promised to them? They did not possess all of the land that was promised to them. In fact, they didn't even kick out all of the people they were supposed to kick out. The point is, is they did not possess all of the land. And neither did they possess all of the land during the kingship of David. Neither did they possess the entire promised land during the kingship of Solomon. So the, the promise, which was sort of semi-fulfilled in the time of the Old Testament, was never fully fulfilled in the time of the Old Testament. But here what we're going to find out is what Paul is saying here is that this is a promise that will find its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that comes down, where then we will, you know, he says they're going to receive the entire world. Abraham is an heir of the world. That's what Jesus says in Matthew in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the promised land. No, they shall inherit the whole earth. But the Paul's main point here is that the promise here did not come through the law, but through faith. Now, again, when Paul is talking about the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the law given to Israel. And for that, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. It's just a few pages over in the New Testament. And in Galatians 3, looking, starting in verse 15, we'll read verses 15 through 18. So Galatians 3, starting in verse 15, Paul writes, Brethren, I speak in a manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Let me just comment a little bit on that. He's, he's going to talk about the new covenant or the covenant that God made with, not the new covenant. He's going to talk about the covenant God made with man. But he says, even in a, man, in a human covenant, once you've set the terms, once the agreement has been signed, you can't annul or change it. Because it has been ratified. That's the point he's making here in verse 15. Even in the manner of men, uh, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and, your, and to your seed who is Christ. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 17. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed between or before by God in Christ, that it should be made, that it should make the promise of no effect. 
For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, the point of reading this passage here primarily is what he says there in verse 17. The reason why the promise has to be by faith and not through the law is because the law wasn't given yet when the promise was made. The law comes 430 years later. The promise was made 430 years earlier. The promise was made with Abraham on the basis of faith. The law, which comes much later, was made uh, with Moses on Sinai. And as he says in verse 19 there of chapter 3, what purpose is the law? What does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. He goes on in verse that he says that. Oh, there it is, 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the purpose of the law was not to ratify the covenant. The purpose of the law was to sort of teach the people before Christ came the things that would, they would need in order to believe in Christ. But here the law comes 430 years later. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what Paul says here in verse 16 about seed and seeds. Okay, the word there uh, in, verse four, uh, in chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans, and here the same thing in chapter 3, verse 16 of Galatians, is the same word for seed, which again we said means offspring or descendant. Now the idea here is the word is a collective word. Okay, in other words, by that I mean you use the singular and it still refers to many. We have the same thing here in English. You know, you say sheep. Okay, sheep can be one sheep. But when you have more than one sheep, you don't say sheeps. Or at least you shouldn't say sheeps. <laughs> the idea is sheep can refer to a whole flock of sheep. You don't say, I have a flock of sheeps. Okay, same thing with seed and seeds. The, the word seed can mean plural, many descendants. But Paul's playing on this concept of the fact that the word is in the singular form, even though the singular form can refer to a, a group, a multitude. And he's, the whole point of making that, that word play there is to show that he's saying that the promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham. Okay, Christ is the seed of Abraham. That's what Matthew says in the very first verse. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The whole point is to show that Jesus is not only descended of the great King David, but he's also a descendant of the great uh, patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham. And here Paul is showing that Jesus, the, he is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. It is found in Christ. Okay, now you can turn back to verse uh, chapter 4 of Romans, please. So in verse 14 of Romans 4, Paul goes on to say, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. He says kind of the same thing here in Galatians 3. But the idea is that if the inheritance of the land comes through the law, then what does that mean of the promise? What does that do to the promise? It makes the promise null and void. That's what Paul says. It says he makes faith of no effect. It makes faith worthless. And in Galatians, Paul just said that if it's by the law, then it cannot be by promise. And when Paul says those who are of the law, he's basically talking about those who achieve or think they can achieve the promise through keeping the law. Adherence of the law. Some translations will actually say those who are adherents of the law. 
But the whole point of Paul's argument is that the promise was given to Abraham way before the law was given, so it could not be by obeying or adhering to the law. And then Paul tells us why the inheritance cannot be through faith, uh, through the law, in verse 15, where he says, because the law brings about wrath. For there is no law, there is no transgression. Now think of what he said back in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, if you remember from that lesson, we talked, the only thing the law is good for doing is pointing out your sin. You, you know, again, ever since Adam fell, the law cannot save you. You cannot obey your way to heaven. Okay? And the only thing the law is good for then is to showing you how far you've fallen, in fact. That's what the law is good for. It shows you your sin. Here, he says, the law only brings about wrath. It's kind of the same concept here. The law cannot justify. It can only reveal knowledge of sin. And here, the law, uh, no one can earn the inheritance through the law, through obedience to the law. Because, as you might say, if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, that way there be wrath. <laughs> If you try to follow the law, if you try to gain the inheritance through the law, all you're going to find is wrath at the end of that tunnel. And because it is humanity's inability to keep the law, humanity's inability to obey the law in its fullness, what that results in is God's wrath. The wages of sin is death. Now, what does Paul mean here with this statement at the end of 15 where there is no law, there is no transgression? I think it's sort of like a corollary or flip side to Romans 3.20. If there is no law, there can be no transgression of the law, right? If there there is no law, you can't transgress a a law, right? If there's no law that says you you get a speeding ticket if you're going on I-80 over 75 miles an hour, if there's there's no speed limit sign there to tell you how fast you're, you're legally allowed to go, then they can't give you a speeding ticket, right? That's the idea. If there's no law, there's no transgression of the law. It doesn't mean that there's no sin. It just means there's no transgression of the law. However, with the law in existence, there is only wrath. That's what Paul is getting at here. The, the law now just reveals your sin and shows you how far or how much you're under the wrath of God. So now as we go to verse 16 and 17... After showing that the promise did not come through the law, Paul tells us that the promise here then must depend upon faith. Verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So this is a conclusion to what he just said in verses 13 through 15. That's why you got that therefore. Why is it therefore therefore? It's to show that he's concluding his argument in verses 13 through 15. Since the promise then does not come through the law, because if it did, the promise would be null and void, then it has to be of grace. If it is not of the law, it has to be of grace. If it is not of works, it has to be through faith. And here we're met again with this contrast, this antithesis between faith and works, between grace and law. Again, in Romans 3.24, 
Paul says, being justified freely by his grace. And we saw this also back in Galatians 3. I hope by now you're seeing sort of how the close relationship between Romans and Galatians. They're, they're really sort of, you know, if, if there were two circles that represent Romans and Galatians, they would have a lot of overlap, okay? There's a lot of overlap in those two books. Where he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The bottom line is this, what Paul is saying here is this. For grace to be grace, there can be no hint of human works involved. For grace to be grace, there can be no hint of human works involved. Again, remember from last week, if justification were through works, then God would be obligated to pay you a debt. We talked about wages, right? If you are an employer and an employee, the employer is obligated to pay you your wages if you fulfill their obligations. If you work so many hours, then you get paid whatever the agreed payment is. Here, the same thing. If justification were by works, then God would be obligated to save you. But he is never in our debt. We talked about that last week. And if justification is a free gift, then what we receive is not wages, but grace. And then Paul goes on to say that it must be a faith so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words here, Paul is saying it must be a faith so that the promise might be sure or that is certain or confirmed. That's what that word means. The promise, if it is not of grace, then that promise is on shaky ground. If the promise were based on law, then we could lose it based on our inability to keep the law, right? If, if, if the promise is given to me and says, okay, I'll make this promise to you, but you've got to keep the law, then it's, now it's up to me. Now it's up to me to keep the law in order to make sure I win the prize. But that's what Paul says. He says, it, in that way, it's not sure. I'm not going to keep the law. I know I'm not going to keep the law. None of you are going to keep the law. You're fine people, but none of you are going to keep the law to its fullest extent, right? That's the point. Because it is based on grace through faith, then the promise does not rest in our ability to keep the law. It rests on the reliability and the trustworthiness of God. It relies on the reliability and trustworthiness of God. And I think that is good news. Aren't you glad it's of faith? I'm glad it's of faith. I'm glad it's, it's based on God's ability to keep the promises. Because if it was based on my ability to keep the law, I'd be gone. I'd be lost. We'd all be lost. That's the point. And then because it is of faith, according to grace, and the promise is certain or sure to all the seed, all the descendants, all of Abraham's descendants. And here we see how the promise is not just to his, to his people, the Jews, it is to all people. Not those who are of the law, that is Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, that's Jews and Gentiles. By virtue of this, Abraham is the father of us all, that is who, all who believe, those who share the same faith, a justifying faith, the same faith that Abraham exhibited. And then Paul here then quotes from Genesis 17, 5. You don't need to turn there. We read it earlier. 
But he says, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, he became literally the father of many nations, right? He fathered not only Isaac, but he also had his son Ishmael. Plus, he had the children that he had with his other wife, Keturah. And then Isaac not only had Jacob, but also Esau. So all of these children, all of these children eventually formed literally many nations. But because Abraham is the father of the faithful, he becomes the head of a vast multitude of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. His spiritual descendants are truly, as he was promised, as numerous as the sand in the sea, as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Now in verse 17, what's going on here where it says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those which do not exist as though they did. Paul's affirming two fundamental truths. God brings life to the dead and God creates all things out of nothing. Those are two fundamental truths that we as Christians believe. But what does this have to do with Abraham? What does this have to do with his faith? Again, if you recall from last week when we looked at Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham in a vision and tells him that he is his shield, his exceedingly great reward. And then Abraham, after hearing that, complains. He says, I have no children. (laughs) He says, okay, you may be my shield, my great reward, but where are the kids you promised me? Where is this this multitude, the sand of the sea, kids that you've promised me? Abraham complains to God that he is still childless after two previous attempts or promises of having numerous children. Genesis 17, starting in verse 15. I'll read through verse 19. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. (laughs) Um, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. When God tells Abraham that Sarah, his wife, shall bear him his son, Abraham, to use the lingo of text in the texting world, he literally LOL'd, okay? Abraham laughed out loud. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm 100, okay? My wife is 90. I think we're a little bit past childbearing age. What do you think, God? But God here gives life to the dead. That's what Paul says in Romans 4. He gives life to the dead, and he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Isaac is truly a miracle baby. And that's what Paul tells, or that's what Paul then says in Romans 4, 18 through 21. Who, contrary to hope, this is Abraham, in hope believed, said he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that he was 
that, he, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So contrary to hope, Abraham believed. God told Abraham and Sarah that they would have children, even though they were long past childbearing age. God told him to believe in the impossible. That God is a God who loves to accomplish the impossible. Right? God is a God who loves to accomplish the impossible. That is often how our faith is formed and tested. By believing in the improbable. By accepting faith in the impossible. Again, looking at Abraham and Sarah, there was no way, there was no way they could contribute to the birth of Isaac, right? There was no human effort that they could do that could produce Isaac. They were just, it was impossible. They were way too old. In fact, as it was, in order to get Ishmael, Sarah had to sort of outsource that, you know, to use modern language, she had to outsource that effort to her, her servant, Hagar, right? But Paul here says, Abraham believed, and look at the terms that he uses, not being weak in faith. He did not waver. He was fully convinced. Here was a man who knew and trusted God in God that while with man this is impossible, with God, what? All things are possible. And then at the end here, verses 22 through 25, the promise is also for us. Because Abraham believed God and that believed God could and would do the impossible, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith in the impossible, that God would do the impossible, was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by grace through faith in Christ. Abraham believed in the promise of God, and God accounted to him as righteous. And now Paul brings this argument back around to us. In this, is this just a story that is only good for Abraham? Is this something that only works for Abraham? In other words, is this something only that is descriptive? And by that I mean something that just simply tells us what happened? Or is it also prescriptive, telling us something that we should do or something that also applies to us? And Paul says here the latter. This is something for us. We should follow in the footsteps of Abraham, the father of the faithful. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 10.6, you could just jot that reference down. Paul tells us that the Old Testament isn't just filled with neat little stories about the Jewish people to entertain your children. He says these truths, these stories in the Old Testament were written for us. They were written for us. And that's what Paul says here in verses 23 and 25. The story of Abraham wasn't written to tell us how Abraham was justified by faith. It was written to prove that just as Abraham was justified by faith, so we too can be justified by faith. Just as the righteousness of God was imputed or applied to Abraham by faith, so too the righteousness of God is imputed to us by faith. We too need to believe in God who raised Jesus up, our Lord, from the dead. Then Paul concludes this section with this great verse in verse 25, where he says, He or Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So Jesus Christ died, right? He was delivered up for our offenses. That just, Jesus Christ was died. He, He was crucified. He died. 
And he was raised or resurrected because, because of or on account of our justification. Now, what does this mean? Simply put, it's this. We often think that it is Jesus' death alone on the cross that what pays for the penalty of our sins, right? Jesus died on the cross, they paid for the penalty of our sins. Technically, this is only half true. It is only half true. It is the death and the resurrection of Christ that pays and fully atones for our sins and makes us righteous or just. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we are still trapped in our sins. Okay? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are still trapped in our sins. The resurrection of Christ is proof. It is vindication. It is, it is a, a sign, a seal, if you will, that God finds the sacrifice of Jesus, his one and only son, as an acceptable sacrifice on account of our sins. And if Christ wasn't raised for our justification, then we are still stuck in our sins because the death of Christ was not found to be good enough. That's the point that Paul is making. He was raised for our justification. Well, that's all I have for this week. Next week, we will begin, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 5. And we will probably look at the first 11 verses of that chapter.